Good morning again. It's good to be with you. As Nathaniel and Justin said, it really is. I need this. Um, I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and I just want to say welcome in the name of Christ. Before I start, before I open my mouth to preach, I have mic trouble. Okay. Before I open my mouth to preach, I do want to say something. Uh, it's, a, it's going to be a bit of a personal, conf- it's going to be all confession, part prayer probably. It'll be brief. Personal, but also as a pastor, I think maybe shepherding, taking part in shepherding this congregation, this little flock, uh, a personal confession, but also a confession as a shepherd for the flock, a corporate confession of sorts. And I just want to say this briefly in front of you all on record. I'm purposefully recording this as before the sermon starts, just personally been very convicted recently of uh, trying to do way too many things in my own strength. So I want to say to the Lord, especially to the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. Um, it's so in line with what Kristen was saying in her own, in her testimony. Just God wants dependence. It, what, the sin of the Laodicean church wasn't that they were rich. It, it was that they were rich and thought they needed nothing. And Jesus showed us the life as fully God of a man, a perfect man who is perfectly and fully dependent on the Lord by his Holy Spirit. I just want to say as a pastor and as a person, I've tried to do way too many things in my own strength. So I want to say to you, Lord, I am sorry. And to you, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, fully God, I've neglected you. And because of that, in some sense, we as a body have neglected you. We repent Cover us with your blood and we say here and we say now, you are welcome here. You are welcome in our lives. You are welcome in the corporate life of this body. As I preach, as we gather, as we scatter into this world to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, to see your freedom set people free and to walk further into that Jesus, we say, Holy Spirit, come. We want to depend on you. We want you to empower us. We need you to empower us, not just for preaching, But for living, you bring Christ to us. Without you, we are not saved. Christ affected our salvation. He did everything necessary for it. You bring that to us. You bring the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, into our hearts. And you raise us up into the heavenlies to seat us with Christ. We love you. We bless you. And we simply say, come Holy Spirit. We repent of trying to do things in our own strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's a sense in which that had nothing to do with the sermon, but obviously it does, so. Um, Okay, intense passage. Thanks a lot, Nathaniel. Just going to put it on him. Man, this is where we are in the book of Revelation. And it is is an intense passage. Um, Let me go ahead and just jump right in now. So, We've looked at a passage that is, it gives us the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard about it. Even if you don't know the scriptures, you've heard about the four horsemen. Here they are. Here's where they come from. Um, it talks about the seven seals that are open. The seventh one is in, uh, in, a, in a couple chapters. There's a pause there. And, and it gives us a key. This passage gives us a key to understanding world history. So I pray that even though it's a really intense passage, it's a really hopeful passage for you. Um, younger Europeans have recently said, I heard this in a news, a news uh, thing this week, 
Younger Europeans have recently said of the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine, we thought this stuff was only the stuff of history books. In other words, that it couldn't happen today. But they're currently being disabused of that naivete. Um, This passage could have helped them, could have helped disabuse them. Um, It speaks of, uh, the first horse speaks of conquest, likely war, followed by bloodshed, famine, pestilence, and death. One scholar writes, speaking of the impact this chapter would have on its original first century audience, I'll say this a number of times probably moving through this passage, this is not just sometime in the future. This was both for the church in the late first century when John was writing. All this stuff was happening, was beginning to happen, had already happened about 20 years before as Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And all these things were happening in big measure over the next few centuries too. And really they've been the story of history for the past 2000 years. I'll make that case in just a second. It's not a, it's not a hard case to make if you read history at all. Okay. And also if you're in tune at all with, with, what, with what's going on in the world today, it's also not hard. It's not a hard case to make, right? Um, he says that the impact this would have had, this passage on the first century audience, even thinking of Christians, thinking of Christians that would have been reading this, to whom this was written, the threat of war and conquest challenged the deceptive claim of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. In other words, if you weren't a believer and you just thought, man, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, he had a famous quote where he said, I found Rome a city of bricks and I left it a city of marble. In the, during the life of Christ and afterwards, the, the Pax Romana was famous. All roads went out from Rome. There was a system of laws and governance um, that really helped bring a stabilization to the Western world and even to the East. As Christians, though, think, of, think about it from the Christian perspective on top of that. Um, you think you believe that Christ is the Lord who's come to rescue us. He's the Messiah. Originally, it was thought he was going to bring geopolitical peace and reestablish Jerusalem and destroy Jews enemy, the, the Jews enemies. That didn't happen. But they might have continued to think Christ is reigning on his throne in heaven. True. Therefore, he's going to bring a tangible, ostensible peace to the world. No. Wasn't the case then? Hasn't been the case for 2,000 years? Isn't the case now? Now, wherever the church grows, do hospitals come about? Orphanages, a sense of order, hopefully. Not always. Sometimes we get things way wrong, like the Crusades and other things, okay? And I'm not just going to lump that. That's a, that's a sort of a, a blunt force um, uh, description of the Crusades. There are other things that happen. But we've done some things wrong, but largely wherever the kingdom of God has gone forth, there has been peace, but there's still war, there's still famine, there's still pestilence, and Christ is reigning. So what do we make of this? That's what this passage speaks about. Craig Keener is a scholar. He writes this. Dial in here. This is, he's talking about the the more, more recent history, okay? Wars remind us that our modern civilization which so often regards with disgust the, quote, barbarism of ancient civilizations and writings like the Bible, okay? It, this modern civilization that we, that we live in remains captive, or if you want to say postmodern, or you want to say late modern, it remains captive to the same sinful human nature as past eras. We're starting, we're, if, we, if we didn't believe that, we're being maybe disabused of that now as unrest is happening in the world in ways that it hasn't before. It really has always, but we've been living in a bubble, right? Okay. Indeed, he goes on, one could describe the 20th century at its beginning 
uh, predicted as the apex of civilization. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, before the first Great War, before the First World War, before 1914, people were saying all over the place in the West, we've reached the pinnacle. There's really nothing more to learn. It's going to be God is out. It's going to be peace forever. We figured it out. Science, we got it. And then the 20th century happened. Okay, he goes on. At its beginning, it was predicted as the apex of civilization as one open-mouthed grave is what it became. An entire generation of European youth composting the World War I battlefields of Verdun and the Somme. Hitler's six million Jews, I'm going to insert the word, dead, murdered. Stalin's 20 million Jews, putting Hitler to shame if you can do such a thing. Soviet citizens, Mao's tens, did I say Jews? Stalin's 20 million Soviet citizens, excuse me. Mao's tens of millions of political enemies and peasant famine victims. Pol Pot's two million Cambodians. Inter Hamway's million Tutsi Rwandans. And the millions of lives wasted away during apartheid's 40-year reign. And I could go on, and I could go on, and I could go on. And that is the 20th century. And it fits really well into this passage here in Revelation 6, doesn't it? But as Reverend William Still of Aberdeen used to say, when the devil is active, God is more active. And this, I think, is one of the main messages of this chapter and indeed of the Bible and of history seen through the Bible's lens. And so what we've seen so far, we're here in Revelation in chapter 6. We've been in the past couple months through Revelation 1 and following up to this point. And without going through it all, what we see is at the beginning of the book, we see the risen Christ saying, I am the king and I hold the keys of death and hell and I'm reigning and nothing that happens happens without passing through my nail scarred hands. And then he has these letters to the churches and he says, I'm with you. I know sometimes it seems like I'm not. We see that here. The church, the saints are crying out. Lord, when are, are you in control? Basically, when are you going to answer our cries? It's okay to do that. Even they are saying, are you in control here? He's saying, I'm in control through my cross. I'm using everything, everything to build my kingdom. And that's one of the main messages of this book. Then we see in chapters four and five, God on his throne. And there's this intractable problem because God has a plan for the rest of creation until he returns. Until the end of time, it's going to be, it's perfect. It's on a scroll written on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. And in short, what happens is John weeps because nobody on, in heaven or on earth or under the earth is, is worthy to set God's plan in motion. But one is found who is, and his name is Jesus Christ, the sinless one who lived the life that we can't live but should and died the death that we deserve on the cross. And he rose beating death and the father accepted his payment for anyone who will come to him by faith. And so he sets in motion. He doesn't just make a way for us to come back to the Father. He also, he does that, sets in motion God's perfect plan for history to roll forth. Okay? And that's what we see in this chapter and then in the succeeding chapters. What we see is Christ is the one who's worthy, who's grabbed God's plan for history, and who's opened the perfectly sealed plan for history, the seven seals. We see six of those seals open here. So with all the horror that we're reading about, all the horses, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, don't forget this. Christ is the one opening the seals. We're going to look at that language in a second together. He's the one. And from the seals, this is the rest of the book. Because what? From the seals, from the last seal, the seventh, come the trumpets, the seven trumpets. From the trumpets come 
the bowls of wrath. From after the bowls is the end of the book and the end of history when he returns and he finishes what he started. So really what we're seeing here is world history and then it's told over and over a few more times in the book. We'll talk about the structure in a later sermon probably more. But what we see here is what's happening in the first century. It's also really a chart for world history until Christ returns. But it's passing through his hands. Now let me get to the first point briefly. The first point I want to make is this. In this chapter, what we see here is what I call, I think it's my phrase, I made it up, but it's probably around somewhere else, it's okay, the economy of the cross. What we see here playing out in world history between Christ's two comings, the first time in weakness, the second time in power, to get rid of the opposition, anyone who oppose him, to vanquish evil and sin completely. What we see here that's actually ordering history, people are looking for an order to history, we get it here. It's the economy of the cross. Let me explain. The lamb is reigning, but not as we thought he would and not as we think he should, perhaps. Okay, the lamb is reigning. Um, Now, let me go ahead and just, let's see. What we see here in chapter six, it's showing us that Christ is indeed reigning, as I said, but the reign of the Messiah. Think about yourself as a first century Christian. Maybe you've converted from Judaism Excuse me, maybe you're, a, maybe you've converted. Maybe you've, maybe you've converted from a pagan religion to believe that Christ is the Messiah. Maybe you are a Jew who believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And your original idea was when the Messiah comes, the idea was he's going to establish a tangible, palpable geopolitical peace that's going to get rid of all this horseman stuff. All the war, all the pestilence. But you're kind of going, wait a minute, that's not happening. And then it's scripted, it's told in black and white. No, no, that's not going to happen at all. Oh, but Christ is reigning. What's happening, okay? The reign of the Messiah and indeed his resurrection, which enables his reign, does not bring geopolitical peace as was supposed, but war. Even so, in the midst of war and death, the lamb reigns through and by the economy of the cross. How did his reign and his power most go forth? The power of God to change creation and to save us and to make us right with God. How did that go forth? How did Messiah bring it? What was the center point? The cross. It looked like the ultimate weakness. It looked like the ultimate defeat. That economy continues to shoot through history with Christ resurrected and reigning until he returns. His greatest power goes out as his church, as his body does what he did as we lay down our lives. And hey, that could look in a lot of, that could look like literally being killed for your faith as is happening over in Ukraine right now and as has been happening around the world with the church for as long as, for 2,000 years. It could also look like the little stuff. If you read the J-curve by Paul Miller and he talks about, that's his thesis, is that the way that Christ, the power of God goes out and the way we become more like Jesus, the way that his kingdom grows in us and goes out from us is by laying our lives down in little ways. Like, Choosing not to engage in an argument that you know you could win, whether it's with your spouse. You always know you could win that argument, right? That's a losing battle. Or choosing with a friend or, or an enemy instead to say, you know what? I'm not going to engage in the argument. I'm going, to, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to listen well. I'm going to seek to understand before being, seek to being understood. That's a death. I don't do that well. And that's just one tiny example, right? One small example. 
This is how his kingdom goes forth through apparent weakness. The economy of the cross goes forth. The power of the, resu- the real resurrection of Christ goes forth. Not by asserting our rights. No. There's a reason right now that the churches in Ukraine are full day and night. I have that on good authority from my spiritual father in North Carolina who, and, and systematics professor who um, invested for years and years and taking trips over there, training pastors. A lot of people have been plowing into that country for a long time. Ever since the curtain came down, especially. The Iron Curtain... And it's for such a time as this. There's a reason that the churches are full day and night right now. Let me, let me quote from Tom Schreiner. He says this. He says, Jesus has come and brought salvation. So he kind of brings it together. So what should we as Christians expect in our life on earth? Again, according to this chapter here, what does it tell us? Will life be radically different now that the Messiah has come to defeat the devil and forgive our sins? John disabuses us of any notion of heaven on earth. Will life be radically different? Absolutely. Will I, will I be brought into full peace with God through the finished work of Christ? Absolutely. But he disabuses us of a notion of heaven on earth while Christ is reigning in this church age, in this age of the spirit. No, no, rather, rather, his kingdom's going to go forth through the economy of the cross. This really totally obliterates the health, wealth, heresy, and so on and so forth, okay? So the, uh, the lamb opens the seals that control the future, in 6, 1 through 8, just like I said, right? Um, remember that he's the one worthy, the only one worthy to open the seals. And the disasters that are enumerated here that happen, they go forth because of his conquest. They pass through his nail-scarred hands. Um, what looks like death uh, actually becomes life uh, and comes out from death through the power of the cross. Okay. Um, One commentator writes, recalling chapter 5, we learn from John's portrait that Jesus conquers not as a lion, but as a lamb, to underscore this point, right? The seven seal book is open not because he mauled his opponents. That's not why he was able to open the book as a lion, but because he gave his life for sinners as a lamb. Um, The instance of Jesus, if you go back in chapter 5, of seeing Jesus as the lamb standing as, as a lamb who was slain in the past, but he's now standing, he's now alive, he's now interceding for us, he's now reigning, okay? He was slain, but he's now alive and victorious over death and hell. This is the first time that he's called the Lamb of 26 times in this book of Revelation. It's the first time in chapter 5. This is the key picture of the conquest of God in the New Testament and in history. His power goes out through weakness. This is why the kingdom of Christ operates differently than any other kingdom, any other world power, and I'm going to say than any other world religion. It happens as we, as we look to the lamb who laid his life down and lay our lives down in response. That is how real power goes forth. And again, just to take a simple example, like with my wife, and a lot of times, probably more, it's her, her saying this to me first and being, being the better person. You can argue, 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 and you, think, you keep thinking you have the best arguments, and it just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to bring the peace that I so think it's going to once I demolish her with my amazing argument. Why is that not happening? Why is that the case? And then the power of saying, pause, you don't say that, but okay. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here's what I've done that's wrong. Can we start over? There's such power that inserts itself into the relationship at that moment, that's a, that's a death. Anyway, small example, but I know we can all relate. 
Um, the growth of the early church happened in this way. And then, as I said, the, glo- the growth of the global church today, the, the church in Ukraine right now, in Afghanistan, we're hearing reports of the fact that people are saying, missiologists are saying in 10 years, we think the Afghan church is going to be, it's already probably one of the fastest growing, but we think it's going to be one of the fastest growing churches because of all the persecution. The church in Iran is currently major statewide persecution of the Christian faith. The Chinese church in the, in the late 20th century and even now, the church, the principle is this, the church always grows on the persecuted edges, on the margins of society where it's persecuted and pressurized. And we, friends, we're going to see, if we're, if we're believers here, we're going to see more and more of that. But be heartened, be encouraged. Christ is reigning and it's the way his kingdom grows. Okay? A lot of it will be soft persecution and it's already there. Okay? Um, so the lamb is reigning, to sum up the first point, but rather than bringing overt peace, he brings war and peace through it. Real and substantial and eternal and lasting peace. He brings and allows death, but life through it. Okay? So that's the first point, the economy of the cross. The second is this, the lamb is in total control. If that, that may have encouraged you, but kind of in a hard way, like, dang. Okay. I hope this really overtly encourages you. Point two is this, the lamb is in total control and he has all power. I just want to jump briefly through the four horsemen and show you this. Um, chapter six, it shows us a few things. One of them is that nothing happens by accident. The war and death and strife and plague and famine and evil are all carefully, carefully, that's a new word, carefully and perfectly directed by God through the nail-scarred hands of the risen Christ who has all authority and is seated at the power hand, the right hand of the Father. And everything that happens follows from this, right? So the Lamb is in charge of history. Note the language. If you look in chapter 6 here at our text, the first horse is the white horse, and a crown was given to him to conquer in verse 2. Okay? Um, uh, now, pause here briefly. Some, there's a debate here among commentators and scholars. They're maybe equally divided. I think not quite. Some think this is Christ. The others clearly are not Christ. They're directed by Christ. Some don't think this is Christ. I'm among those who don't. It's not, that's not the point I'm making here. But I think that... So, this rider has a bow. He's on a white horse. He has a bow. I believe white was a special color to the Parthians. They were an ancient and eastern enemy of the Roman Empire. They were always giving Rome trouble on her east at this time in the late first century. A bow was their weapon of choice. And so regardless of who this is, conquest. Conquest that leads to death and war and famine is what's, um, is what's being purported here, what's being told to us. A crown is given to him to conquer. And here's the point I want to make and then move to horse two, three, and four. Note the language. Look at verse 2. A crown was given to him to conquer. Was given to him. That's a passive verb. Who was giving that crown, that permission to conquer? Class? Christ. The risen Christ. The second horse is red. Verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. This is a history of the past 2,000 years. If you've read anything, you know this. I just made a small case for the 20th century, this being a good history of the 20th century. Um, Okay, again, the language. Its writer was permitted to take peace. Accident or choreography? No. Who's doing the permitting for this horse of bloodshed and war to take the peace? Class? I see Stephen mouthing the word that's always right in Sunday school. Jesus. That's right. 
Christ is permitting peace to be taken from the earth in places and for a time. The third horse, we see about five, if you do the calculations a little bit, the commentators say it's about between five and 15 times inflation. Can anyone say, I can feel a little bit, bit of that pain right now, just a little? People, think about Weimar, Germany, uh, one of the things that led to Hitler's rise in power and other places, even in the world right now, inflation's far worse. We're getting a tiny taste of it. It ain't fun. Um, economies are disrupted. We have massive inflation here, but the oil and the, um, the wine are not to be touched. Again, it's a directive. You can go thus far and no farther. There are limits. And who's, who's making those limits? Jesus. That probably means that the rich weren't as affected. Oil and wine, those were luxury items, okay? So this is something that really hits the middle and the lower classes big time, um, but it's allowed and it has limits, okay? And who is directing this? A horse of famine, but also setting its limits? Christ. The voice of directive is coming from in the midst of the four living creatures from the throne. Um, finally and fourthly, there's a green or pale horse. The word in the Greek can mean green or pale. There are various English translations. That's because it means sickly. Like, you know, when you're about to throw up, somebody might say, oh man, you look green. Or you also look really pale. Uh, it's, it's that, okay? Um, death and hell followed this horse. He's given authority to kill with famine and pestilence. Disease, COVID anyone? Okay, and uh, wild beasts ravage. Given authority by whom? Christ. Okay. What did Jesus say to his disciples as one of the last things that he said in Matthew? Last thing in Matthew 28 in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, behold, all authority has been given to me. All authority. He has it all. He gives it to whom he will. Again, remember, these horses are all emerging from the seals that are being opened by whom? Jesus, the worthy one, because he has conquered. And this is how he's allowing history to go forth and how actually his kingdom is going forth through these horses, through these disasters, okay? It seems, it's, even the saints are crying out and saying, what's happening? Are you in control? And he's saying, yes, I am very much in control. I am the one permitting this. I am the one setting the limits. I am the one using this because of my cross. We see that in verse 10, men and women who died for their allegiance to Christ are crying out from heaven, Sovereign Lord, why are you not judging and avenging our blood on those who unjustly murdered us? They believe God is in, in total control, but they're saying, why do you wait? Will you ever come? Will you do anything? Why don't you? These questions are, the Psalms are littered with these kind of prayers. And it's okay as the people of God to pray them. But do so with this understanding from chapter 6, knowing we have a king who is near to the brokenhearted, who holds our pain, who died for it, who died for our sin, who's with us. He's also at the nerve center of the cosmos pulling the levers. And all this is orchestration because of his cross. And he's alive, okay? Um, what is his response to these questions from his saints? Are you going to do anything? Where are you? Does he give them a backhand slap for their impudence? No, no, no. What does he do? He clothes them in white robes and he tells them to rest. What? If you look at the text, until the complete number of Christians is killed. Christ, this is part of his plan too. You know, the cross was his plan. He used our freely chosen evil and sin and rebellion against him to what? To save us. The cross was determined by the Godhead from before the beginning of time so that he would be the fall guy to become our sin on the cross, to stand between us and a, and a holy God who can't look on sin. He cannot countenance and thank God he can't. But that's a problem for us. 
He endured the white hot wrath of God for us. And he has, just as he orchestrated that, his plan for history is it involves even his own people. He doesn't, he's not doing the killing. He's not, no evil comes from God. No sin will touch him, but he's so powerful because of the cross. He's able to use all these things for our good, for the good of those who love him and for his kingdom to go forth in power. He plans it, he knows, he cares, and make no mistake, he will avenge it. Tom Schreiner again says this, our vindication won't come, he doesn't put a period at that, he says, our vindication won't come during the present evil age, but it will come. Not taking vengeance into our own hands as believers The only way that's possible is to know that God is a God of mercy, but there's a point, and that point is his return at which that mercy ends. And if you're not in Christ, his vengeance will be poured out against evil and sin. He will do away with it. Leave it to him. Leave it to him. Forgive. Lay your life down. He's got it. Bring people in. Preach the gospel. Tell them there is a way to avert the wrath of God. There is one way, and his name is Jesus Christ, and his arms are open. But when he comes again, he comes as the lamb of wrath, as we see at the end of this passage. You don't want to be on that side. It says that it is more preferable for a mountain to fall on you. People are begging for mountains. Have you ever seen a mountain? That would hurt. A mountain falling on you is preferable to enduring his wrath. But he endured the wrath of God in our place. But the time is now to come. When he comes again, it is too late if you've not hidden in him. That is one of the big messages of this passage. And really, that is the third point. And I basically just said it. So nobody ever, nobody ever has been upset with me for a sermon that was too short and it probably will never, ever happen. And so what I'm going to do is very much... Uh, um, Shorten this last point. This last point is this, the wrath of the Lamb. We see it at the end of the text. To preach this text is to preach, even a little bit, on the wrath of the Lamb. Let me just, let me just delineate that a bit and then move to a close, some application to close. God's mercy in Christ, as I just said, is for a limited time only. Kind of pulling that sort of culturally resonant phrase that usually has to do with buying stuff, right? His mercy in Christ is fully available now through Christ and Christ alone, as the gospel is preached in word and deed to people, the message is come now. He has made a way for you to be brought back into his family. Christ took the war of God. He took the missiles of God that are justly aimed at us for our disobedience and our sin, all of us. He took the missiles of God on that cross. And so now is the time to run to him by faith and say, you died for me. You lived a life of perfect obedience for me. I should have taken what you took, but you took it from me. You love me. So great, is, so great was my sin and rebellion. So great is the problem I put up between me and God. Even greater is your salvation. Even greater is your love. I come to you now. Now is the time, but it's a limited time only. It won't last forever for everyone. That's a huge message of the book of Revelation. And that was a huge message of Jesus. Why do you think Jesus preached hell more and better than anyone else? Because he went to the cross to take it. He knew what it tasted like. He knew what it felt like, and he didn't want anyone to feel it. He wanted rather for us to feel the affection, as Justin was saying earlier, of the Father. That's what he invites us into. And it's free for us, but it wasn't free for him. 
But that is limited time only. The time is coming when Jesus will end evil and vanquish all who oppose him. And isn't that good news? We want, if, if we want a God who ends evil, we don't want evil to just go running around forever. We want it to be stopped. But the problem is if it's stopped and evil is still in our hearts and there's still this sin and rebellion between us and God, we're going to be the ones who are destroyed. But Jesus took care of that. He took care of that on the cross. Um, and his wrath, touch on this, and then quote my mentor and then move to application and close. His wrath, I just want to get this, it's not said enough. And I'm, be- and I'm beginning even more to discover it myself. His wrath, when you think about, okay, Jesus, who can be more loving? The picture we have of our God is a cross, hanging on a cross to save us. If there had been another way, he wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. So great is his love for us. And yet Jesus preached on the wrath of God and hell more than anyone else. Wait a minute. Is it like a schizophrenic Jesus? He's loving me on the cross, but he's hating me. Talking, he's a meanie talking about the wrath. No, no, no. Man, when I was, I've said this before, but when I was, uh, what do you, let me just forget that rat poison. I got into rat poison as a kid. My mom was not happy. Why? Because she hated me? No, because she loved me. When I, man, there was a kid running out in the street yesterday. We had a crawfish boil. Man, do you think that parent was just okay with that? It's literally a kid pushing a little cart out in the street during a crawfish boil and there are cars going back. No, the kid, the first reaction to a parent is, ah, you know, it's, it's out of love. Jesus wages war against evil and sin because he loves his good creation and sin destroys it. Sin corrupts it. And the cross is the solution for that so that we don't have to be destroyed, but he was destroyed in our place and creation can go forth and we can be saved. His assault against evil is out of his love. He never acts, he never acts but in the fullness of his attributes. Even his wrath is a loving wrath. He's always loving. He's always just. Justice and mercy converge on the cross. Let me, let me read Dr. Kelly's quote for you. But the good news is this. He's talking about chapter 6, okay? All of, all of wrath, all of the wrath, of God against sin and filth and shame and rebellion and atheism and wickedness. And and can I say religiosity? Can I throw that in there as a bracket? And every kind of sin in the book, religiosity being trying to get to God in your own efforts by your own good behavior, okay? Every kind of sin in the book, financial, sexual, societal, personal, all of that, says Dr. Kelly, was poured on the lamb at Calvary's cross. Calvary comes from the word that means Skull. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem at a hill that looked like a skull. Even atheist historians admit, yes, this is true. What do you make of that? What will you do with that? Will you come to him? That's the question. Not that he exists. That is why, Kelly says, Jesus could say before he dies, it is finished. Anyone who looks in faith out of self to Christ for salvation. Remember that cursed serpent hanging outside of yourself on the cross? Look outside of yourself to it, not to your own efforts, but to it, the one who is cursed in your place, and be saved. Have the poison removed. Anyone who looks outside of themselves to Christ for salvation will never have a problem with the wrath of God, Kelly says. It has all been poured out on the Lamb. It has all been taken care of. God's law was magnified in what Jesus went through. Briefly, four lessons, and then... I pray. And then we celebrate together at the table. 
God, number one, God has suffering pulling this all together. He has suffering in store for his saints. American church is maybe the worst, the worst church of all time. I mean, I don't just say that phrase. I mean, of all time, like of all the past 2000 years, we may be the worst. And I'm leading the pack in understanding this truth. You cannot follow Christ and not carry your cross. The cross is an instrument of death. And it happens in little ways every day. But it has to start with saying, I'm no longer the boss. I surrender. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. Here I am. God has suffering in store for the saints. So the health, wealth, gospel is not a gospel. It's a heresy. We've lived in a sort of historical global bubble, an exceptional time in history. But history is a history of war. Quote, part of Revelation's message, Craig Keener says, is the warning that all Christians must be ready to suffer. Um, somebody was saying earlier, I think it was Kristen, help. Uh, I want to be someone who overcomes, who conquers. That is what this means. It means pushing in, persevering in the face of suffering because we have one who's in us and who's gone before us and who's reigning who went to the cross and he's alive and we have nothing left to fear. And I would add, so suffering is also an opportunity to prove what we're made of, says Keener, namely Christ. And I would add this, suffering in and for Christ is the splitting of the atom out of which power goes forth. To build his kingdom. Tremendous, tremendous power is released. It's the power of the cross. Secondly, so first, God has suffering in store for his saints. So don't be dismayed by it. Don't be surprised by it. Secondly, God uses evil for good. He's building his kingdom through it. It's his tool. He doesn't make evil good. Evil is evil. He's going to do away with it. But he's using it for good. Thirdly, he's placing and protecting his own people in the midst of this. Chapter 12, we'll get there, talks about putting his people in the wilderness. We are sojourners. This is not our home. Actually, heaven isn't either. Our citizenship is there, but heaven is coming down. When Christ comes again, he's bringing heaven down and he will reign as the God-man here in a renewed creation. No locks on doors. No more selfishness. No more guns. Unless, no, no more guns. Um, if you like to hunt, you'll have another pleasure somewhere. Sorry. All the, all the NRA people just got mad at me. I'm in Texas. I could, get, I could get defrocked for that here, probably. No more death. No more sin. Um, no more locks on doors. No more cancer. And it's not going to be playing on clouds. It's going to be adventuring and exploring and building and judging. All the good stuff. Augustine said this, and you've heard this a million times if you've been here. No, nothing that is good will not remain. A glass of wine with friends, a sunset, digging in your garden. Man. And on and on it goes. A glass of good, uh, good beer and some red meat. There's a Texan statement. Hey, all the good stuff, man. And on and on it goes. Being with your children and the joy in their eyes. This is just the shadowlands. This is just the taste of the feast that's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. We're in the wilderness now, but he's protecting us. Even if we die, he's got his hand on us. And fourthly, we should therefore expect suffering and take heart. We should persevere. We should expect and know that his best work, his glory, his salvation will be wrought through suffering in our lives, through surrender. It will help us make it will help make us a tough people, a people with grit and determination, but who have great joy and hope, who are not jaded, who are not cynical, who are not despondent. Let me pray.